action. Welcome to Torn Stubs, the trash movie podcast with me, Robert Gershenson, photographer and head of podcasts at Trash, which could be found at movetotrash.co.uk, and Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. This season, we'll be concentrating solely on the films of Sofia Coppola, starting with The Virgin Suicides, which came out in 1999, 20 years ago. I can't believe it's been 20 years since The Virgin Suicides. And it might have been 20 years since I last saw it. I think I yeah. saw it. I didn't see it in the cinema because I don't remember it coming out. But I remember watching it when it hit Sky Movies the next year. So I probably haven't seen it for 19 yeah. years and probably not since then. Yeah, same. It, yeah, I feel like I watched it back when I was kind of like, Kirsten Dunst is my big teen like high high she school had Hollywood moment. buddy. Yeah, like having her shining moment as the teen bubbly rom-com kind of girl. And was this watched... her first thing? Oh, God, no. No, she did, like, Interview with the Vampire in, like, Oh, no, but... No, but and... Yeah, but she wasn't, like, up front. No one really knew who she was. Was this the first thing where people went, oh, this is Kirsten Dunst? Well, because she'd done... Like, Jumanji was 95, so that was, like, her big thing as well. I didn't know she was... I've never seen that, but I didn't know she was in it. Jumanji's brilliant. Okay. Yeah, really funny. Um, and then the same year as this, she did Drop Dead Gorgeous. And after, the year after this, she did Bring It On. So she was kind of, she was definitely yeah, around. Yeah, she was in Bring It On. Yeah. Torrance. Good old Torrance. God. Okay. Yeah. So she, so this is what, this is her first grown up Grown up role? I mean, an interview with a vampire was an incredibly grown up role for when she was incredibly young. Yes. But this is kind of her first kind of mature adult role post-teen Doom, I would say. Like yes. she was, I think she was sixteen when she made this film. Yeah, sixteen um, or seventeen. Yeah. So, she, I mean, she she's talked about being nervous about doing it, um, particularly because it was more of like a sexy thing for her. Um, but she felt put at ease by Sofia Coppola and her kind of vision of who these girls in the film are. Were you aware who Sofia Coppola was before the Virgin Suicides? No, no idea. No. So you hadn't seen Godfather Part 3? I still haven't seen Godfather Part 3. Peggy Sue Got Married? I've, I've, yeah, yeah, I'd seen that, but I, just, I don't remember her being in that. I don't know, that we're flipped. I've seen Godfather 3, but not that one. Oh, right, okay. Um, she probably has quite a small role in that, but that's directed by her dad, Francis Ford Coppola, right? A small role in Godfather Part 3? No, in Peggy's, Oh, Peggy Sue. Yeah. Was that directed by Coppola? Yeah, it was directed by Francis Ford Coppola, her dad. Hmm. So that's, I guess that's why she was in it. Like, there was a role and she fancied it, so... What year was that? 1986. 1986? Yeah. Okay, so Godfather Part 3 was f- two years late. No, four years later, 1990. Okay, so she was basically a teenager. She was basically films. a teenage actress. Yeah. And then she was never looked on very favourably. I mean, it's, yeah. it's notorious how scathing the reviews were for her performance in Godfather Part 3. And I don't think she's that bad. Yeah, it was, that was just kind of a thankless kind of thing to do because it was Winona Ryder was meant to play the role oh really and then she dropped th- dropped out and then so I think it was kind of like shit 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 and then Sophia Coppola what did she drop into, out for um I don't know actually I'm not sure it kind of been a, a fallen out because she ended up in Dracula oh yeah which was a few years later yeah maybe three four years later it's definitely yeah it's definitely yeah. 90s not 80s so it's yeah. going to be afterwards but yeah so it's fair to say Sophia Coppola got kind of unfairly blamed for maybe, um, you know, um, 
certain underperforming aspects of Godfather Part 3. Mm-hmm. And she has talked about that quite a lot in recent years because people obviously still talk about that. Um, and she has said that she didn't want to be an actress, um, so it didn't traumatize her, the fact that she was attacked by the press. Um, she did say, and I quote, she says, the scars were not permanent, it was painful, but it wasn't devastating. So she's kind of moved on from that, and now she is a celebrated director. Yeah, well, look at the the success she's had over the past 20 years. She's not yeah. sitting in the kitchen crying about Godfather Part 3. And the hilarious thing is as well that she actually, it feels like she doesn't make that many films. I mean, she's made six films in the last 20, 20 years. years. Yeah, She's basically consistently made one film every three to four years. Yes. So she is actually around a lot. Um, but I don't know. I don't, maybe it's because everything she does is so different in a lot of ways, stylistically different, um, that it doesn't necessarily feel like she's kind of around a lot. I don't know. She's definitely in the category of auteur. Yes. You definitely. couldn't take Sophia Coppola and say to her, could you take the Han Solo movie that we've <laughs> just fired Lord and Miller off and make the Han Solo movie we want? Because you wouldn't get the film that you want. You would yeah. get a Sophia Coppola movie. You wouldn't get a Star Wars movie directed by Sophia Coppola. No. And she's talked about how she was meant to make the live action version of The Little Mermaid. And, um, that she, wouldn't work. No. And she just kind of... I think she didn't want to relinquish that auteur kind of control. And yeah. so she stepped off and didn't do it. And instead she made The Beguiled. Well, um, potentially she's learned from her dad. Because mm. he, he was the independent American filmmaking auteur in the 70s with the Godfather trilogy. Uh, the, God, the two Godfathers, um, The Conversation, Apocalypse Now. Yeah. He ended up having money problems and he had to pay back his debt by being a a director for hire which is why he ended up doing things like Jack or, or did Peggy. he do Jack? he did Jack with um, Robin Williams and J-Lo Robin Williams is that right? no yeah Robin Williams yeah, yeah. you're thinking of Robbie Williams so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always terrified I'm going to get that wrong <laughs> that's a totally different film but he ended up doing those kind of studio for hires that's why he did um, The Firm or not, yeah John Grisham's The Firm that's a good film though I mean, you would look at it and go oh that is a good film it's not oh this is a Francis Ford Coppola movie yeah it's like a solid kind of uh, mainstream thriller isn't it it's a 90s thriller but yeah. you wouldn't necessarily think that's what <clears throat> an auteur would end up doing so i can't see sophia coppola heading off in that way yeah she came out of the the, the gates here with such a strong style yeah this is such a stylistic movie that it's it's so poetic and it's so so much of a a fashion spread in a magazine mm. that I wouldn't be surprised if she was a photographer beforehand. I think, well, because she went to art school and she kind of, she said that she was quite frustrated in art school. She had so many different interests, like she loved music and design and photography. um, And she couldn't really find anything that really clicked. Mm. Um, And so I think that definitely informs her directing. And she only really came to directing after having read The Virgin Suicides. And she kind of, saw it in her head and she said that she knew exactly how this film should be made. It had been optioned by um, somebody else and somebody else was going to direct the film. Who was that? It was a guy called Nick Gomez. Mm-hmm. But he turned in, in a script that the production company didn't like. The The rights lapsed to the novel. And so Cop- Coppola went in there and was like, I'm going to pitch it. And they were like, ah, right, okay. And you, she must have gone in with such a strong vision because you can just see it on the screen, can't you? It's- I would imagine that the name helps. This is a $6 million budget. 
yeah 20 years ago well da- her dad produced it as well yeah but i don't know if he had anything more than that to do with it i don't think no i don't think he i'm did. pretty sure i've read that he said you need to go get these the rights of the books on your own right you need to go do this on your own but yeah. it was put out through american zoetrope so that's probably why he gets a producer credit yeah, I think he was kind of there as maybe like a background advisor for her, like a yeah. support network for her. I would imagine um, so. I think she said that he was on set one time and he told her that she needed to shout action louder to kind of exert <laughs> her authority over the, the crew. Yeah. Which is like a helpful bit of advice, which you wouldn't necessarily get from your producer. But or... she's quite quiet anyway in interviews. Yeah, yeah. I think that a lot, so much has been made about her coming from this kind of filmmaking dynasty. Mm. But... I think that it's so easy to forget that lots of people have that kind of dynasty in their family. Like you get families of teachers, you get families of doctors, yeah. you get families of artists. And she just happens to have had the privilege of being born into an artistic family. But and I she's it, turned it to her advantage. I think it's to do with the fact that it's an American dynasty. They don't mm. have a royal family. Yeah. So they are crazy about the Kennedys. Mm. And they're crazy about the Rothschilds because they don't have a royal family to dote on. So the Coppolas become a royal family to them. Yeah. The Baldwins yeah. are often doted on. They are, but then they're also kind of torn apart as well. Like, I guess in a similar way to the, the way we treat the royal family. Yeah. In that we kind of look at them with this kind of like, oh, there's such history behind them and it's, they're so interesting as a family. But also we want to know all the nitty gritty and the dirty stuff. And we want to... But it's just, it's human nature to help, you know, build someone up and then just tear them down when they're yeah. getting too big for their boots. And you put them there in the first place. I think that it's very telling that Sophia Coppola has um, kind of had, yes, she had maybe like a few toes in the door, but Hollywood is a savage industry. Mm -hmm. You're not going to make it if you don't have something to back that up. Oh, yeah, the door can be open for you, but if you haven't got the talent, it's going to get slammed in your face. Right. But what's great about this is that she's built up an A-game around herself from the get-go. It's it's a really multi-layered film. The Virgin Suicides, even these little quirks. So there's there's lovely little quirks that just elevate scenes to another level. The sprinkler system comes on uh, when the girl is dead on the railings. Yeah, it, it cuts to often you know she's jumped off, she's hit the railings, and they've all crowded round her, and the dad uh, James Woods holding on to her, and then the, the the camera cuts to a wide, and the sprinkler system just just comes on. It's just such a nice little touch. It's just a very suburban touch. And then the day after when the neighbours are trying to remove the the fence, the railings, one of the neighbours has got a tray of orange juice and glasses. <laughs> and it's it's really, it's quite David Lynch. It's, yeah. it's just a little bit oddball, but it's just enough to fit into that scene. Yeah. I think that one of the really, one of Sophia Coppola's great strengths is is kind of um is i don't know just the way that she is able to immerse you completely into her world mm. so she kind of sets this up as 25 years ago in michigan it's very clearly meant to be the 70s it would have been 25 years ago in the 90s when this yeah. came out um and she kind of just picks out details about this setting that make you feel like you're so part of it. You know this world completely. You know the shots of the of the suburban street, the the, the sun coming through the trees, the handwritten text on the screen. Yeah, like like girls had been writing on their yeah. note, on their textbooks. Well, almost like the film itself is actually a journal. 
it kind of makes mm. it feel like we are experiencing the journal of the boys who are kind of narrating the story yeah. about this family. Then the rating about this family who lived across the street and there were five daughters and at the start of the film, one of them kills themselves. And then... Or she attempts to kill herself. Well, she attempts to kill herself, but then very quickly on she does. Within yeah. the first 15 minutes, she's dead. Mm -hmm. And then the film... It's more of an observation piece. It's not a straight-on narrative, but we kind of start investigating who this family is, who are the boys across the street, and the fascination that maybe exists between the two camps. Mm. It's a very difficult film to put your finger on a narrative because there isn't a narrative. It really is a very dreamy-like observation piece. Yeah, it's like you you're you're forewarned that something bad's going to happen like there's there's a real sense of foreboding mm. that hangs over the entire film um there's a moment when the narrator who's the, the kind of one of the boys who's been watching the girls he says the only part this is the only party of their short lives so you know that uh, obviously the film's called the virgin suicides plural so you know that some shit's gonna go down yeah um so yeah it has like a real sense of foreboding and then it kind of it kind of teases you a little bit. It kind of, it wants you to try to figure out why these sisters all end up killing themselves. Like, what is the cause of this mass suicide? Um, and it's almost like you can't really figure it out. It's almost, it's similar to, we need to talk about Kevin, where there are kind of ideas and you can figure out maybe for yourself what you think may have happened. But there's no proper answer really but is that the point of the film is it are we yeah. meant to understand no i don't think so i think it's it's kind of like shocking things like this happen in real life um why do they happen nobody really knows otherwise they wouldn't happen anymore do you think it's an unsatisfying experience to not understand I think they, that... they all die spoiler it's called the virgin suicides yeah they all die by the end of the film all five girls are dead yeah but i think the I think that it plays really well with ambiguity. So you can say, oh, the mother was too restrictive. Mm. You can say, oh, the father was a bit of a kook and wasn't really helping out his daughters as much as he could have. He was like a George McFly figure. Yeah, he really was. Like, there's that mm. weird moment where he just suddenly starts talking to a plant in the school hallway. <laughs> yeah. It's really bizarre. Well, he might have been suffering some, from some sort of breakdown by then. Right, that, yeah, because his daughter has died. Yeah, and, but yeah. when they're trying to get rid of the tree... yeah. And the workman come up and he says something like, have you not heard of this alternative therapy? And the guy goes, it doesn't work. And he goes, all oh, right, yeah, and backs off and lets Kathleen Turner take over. Yeah. He's such a wimp. Yeah. Um, I can bet you've got Josh Hartnett was in the film. He's so beautiful in this. He's so like rake skinny though. Well, he always was very, very um, lean. Yeah. I'm not too sure about his dinner lady hair. No, well, I mean, that was very like, it's like in Carrie when... Um... What's he called in Carrie? Is he called Billy or Bob or something? John Travolta. No, no, no. Well, there's him, but there's like the jock who's got the big blonde perm. Oh, I can't remember that. Like all the guys in the 70s had ridiculously enormous Ridic hair. Well, not the other kids had regular hair that you could probably find now. Yeah. His hair was very, very special. But he's, like, <laughs> <laughs> he's like the most popular kid at school. It's a very interesting, it's a very interesting characterization. He's the most popular kid at school. He's not like a jock. He's not a Danny Zuko. He's quite sexual and sensual and he's very loving mm. but he doesn't feel 
like stereotypically 70s or even 90s. He feels very now. Yeah, that's true, actually. Like he that just, character could be a, a side character in Love, Simon. Yeah, he's just, he's like that guy who mm. exists in high school. Everyone had a guy like that in their school who had his pick of I did anyone. Not. Really? No. Yeah. Everyone was an asshole in school. <laughs> Hated school. I suppose maybe it's like a very American thing to have that. Maybe, yeah. That kind of magical guy. School to me was like Grange Hill. It's like but a you fight went for survival. You went to school in London, so that explains it. I did, I went to school in Camden. Yeah. But he, um, it's such an interesting portrait of a guy who you, he pulls the wool over our eyes as well. Like you really believe that he's completely fallen for Kirsten Dunst's character. And then he leaves her asleep but, in the middle of a school but does field. He, but is that, does he leave her? I mean, we see him walking away. So have they had sex? Is that the, is that what we're meant to believe? Yeah. So he's, he's fucked and he's walked away. But then we, he, that's him leaving the film, but we don't know if he's made contact, if he's tried to make contact after that. Well, we're going to assume that he didn't because she starts kind of sleeping with everyone in the neighbourhood, doesn't she? But she could be doing that while he's co- trying to contact, right? Maybe. I don't know. It's very ambiguous. Well, is, is she meant to be the one that we're feeling sorry for? Absolutely. Yeah. But and is, it's that almost right? like, is that right? I mean, her behaviour is not that you know, moral. She's quite, she's not, she's not the oldest girl. In fact, she was mm. the second youngest. She was only 14, that character. She's 16, isn't she? I thought she was, I thought Lux was four. Is it Lux? Yeah. Yeah, I thought she was 14. But if she's the second eldest, that means she has to be older than 14 because there are three other sisters below her. Right. Okay. Either way, she's not the oldest, but she's yeah. like the most rebellious. She's the yeah. leader of the pack. Yeah. And she's like that from the beginning. She kind of gets, yeah. she has, she finds enjoyment in tormenting boys. Yeah. Like there's that dinner scene where she's touching the, the kid's leg underneath the table. Yeah. And she's kind of like, do you like to wrestle and that kind of stuff? <laughs> so she's, she's almost like the perfect foil for Josh Hartnett, but then she kind of gives in to him and then he foils her. So yeah, maybe it's kind of a, an even thing, but he definitely comes in like a wrecking ball and he transforms her. He came in like a wrecking ball. I don't know the rest of the song. <laughs> James Woods. James Woods. Yeah. What's, what is, what's the deal with James Woods nowadays? I don't know, but he, why is he not working? His performance in this is so... You know, he's probably, he was probably the biggest name in this film. Well, him and Kathleen Turner. I would say even bigger than Kathleen Turner. Mm. You know, he was, he, he'd been in things with David Cronenberg. He'd been in things with... John Carpenter. But when that's they, still, that's but still when very they, much no, but when they films. were big. So yeah. he was like a big, big Hollywood star. And then suddenly he's doing this. So arguably he's the biggest thing in this film. And he doesn't have the ego that says, this is, should all be about me. I should be the lead. He's this bloke in the background, quietly falling apart. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, and there's something really like tragically funny about him. Like he's got a, he lives in a house full of women. Yeah. And he's just desperate to have some kind of male interaction to the point where there's a date in the house and he just brings down these like plane wings oh, to the show party, him. Yeah. And it's just really sad where this kid just has no interest in this, this dad's attempt. To he just wants some him. sort of, of some sort of contact, some sort of social interaction. Yeah. Cause he's not getting it from his wife. Well, she's so repressed Kathleen Turner's character. She's kind of like typical church going seventies mom. She's like, oh, she definitely has that, that look on her face. Android. Says, I love Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus is my best friend. Yeah. I just love my God. It's a very difficult film to 
I find it really difficult to talk about this film because it is just so unusual. You don't really get many films like this. Mm. I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about, we need to talk about Kevin. There's a film that came out a few years ago called Thoroughbreds, which is about... Dogs? Two teenage girls. Oh, okay. Um, Anya Taylor-Joy and Olivia Cook. Never heard of it. It's very, very good. It's very dark. And it's about two teenage girls who are just kind of... They feel like outsiders and then they start to plot something horrific. It's really, really good. I'd recommend watching it. There is a, a complete disconnect between the adults and the kids in this film. They barely have scenes together. And when they do, it's almost like they're completely in different hmm. scenes. The dad is just sat there, not really paying attention. The mum is maybe just paying, just paying attention to Lux. Only if there's a boy there. Yeah, but there's no one else in the scene as far as they're concerned. Mm. And when the first girl dies, there's just no mention of it. It's just completely brushed under the carpet. Like, yeah. why? Why didn't they want to talk to the priest? Do you think that the only reason that they all killed themselves is because the first sister did? Because they're like, they move around in a pack, the five of them. Yeah. You never, well, you very, very rarely see them on their own. Either, I think there's only one scene where Lux is on her own and that's when she's with Josh Hartnett. Yes, she breaks off from the group. Yeah, but otherwise there's either two of them together or yeah, all of them are together. Yeah, when they sneak under the stage at the, yeah. at the prom. They're never on their own. So it's almost like this kind of pack mentality of we've lost one of the, our number, we should all do this then as well. It's like a weird, that's a weird suggestion, I think. Maybe it's an escape thing. Because mm. by the time that the prom has happened and they're kind of house locked to their house yeah. bound and they're having to burn all those vinyls what did they have to burn it was so painful to watch <laughs> them burn the kiss vinyl i was like i was like my god that's a, an original 1974 hotter than hell mm. i want that don't burn it send it me no wonder she was hugging it and crying her eyes out i'd be like <laughs> they you had, they had the hot and hell they had um the the first album there was a guy wearing a kiss t-shirt i was like this film's made for me. Yeah. <laughs> but you should be dating Lux. I should be. Ah, oh, no, the I best should be taste in music. Yeah. I should, no, I should be dating Lux. I should be Lux and I can have Josh Hartman. Oh yeah. That'd be better. Football film. But, um, I can't remember what I was saying now that we were talking about Kiss. Well, they were housebound. Oh, they were housebound. So from that point on, they start buying catalogs and, um, imagining themselves or the boys imagine that they are imagining themselves going off and having holidays or whatsoever. Mm. Their only connection to the outside world were these, catalogs they couldn't go on the internet because it was 1975 or 1976 and maybe just killing themselves was a complete escape but why do you think they they or lux invited the boys around first yeah it's weird isn't it and like you never you never see them discussing it amongst themselves no you never see them go right i'm gonna hang myself i'm gonna stick my head in the oven you're gonna go and get in the the car in the garage you never see them actually talking about committing suicide. It just happens. But by that time in the film, we're more or less mostly experiencing everything from the point of view of the boys. Yeah. So we're seeing through the, the telescope. We're very rarely actually over in, in the house. Yeah. So we wouldn't necessarily see them discussing it. But then if we hear them discussing it, then the ambiguity is completely gone. Mm. Yeah. I think they invited the boys around or Lux invited the boys around because maybe the other girls didn't know she was doing that. In order to have a witness, just to be like, we existed. Yeah. We have, our, our existence has been validated. Hmm. Someone knows about us or someone's interested in us. It could be that or it could be like the ultimate cock block. 
Like she's consist <laughs> she's like consistently played with other with men and young boys and kind in of in their clear field of vision. Yeah, and just kind of like thinking about that moment where she's got her leg under the table, stroking the guy's leg, and yeah. she's kind of constantly teasing them, saying, "You could have me, or could you? I don't know." Even right up to the point just before she kills herself, mm. she kind of grabs that little one's ha- yeah. Oh, yeah, belt the- buckle and just undoes his belt and yeah. says, "I'll be right back," or something, or "I'm going to get the car," or whatever. Yeah, so it's it's almost like a really manipulative move. Yeah. Just kind of doing something. You're not entirely sure exactly what she's doing. Maybe even she doesn't know what she's doing. But I don't know. I, th- I think with, with Lux, I think she she's the, the most world world weary or world worldly, the most yeah. intelligent street smart. one, street smart one of the of the bunch. Yeah. She's the one that orchestrates sex with Josh Hartnett. The others are going to go back for curfew, but she doesn't, mm. which then causes them to become prisoners in their own home. Yeah. Sophia Coppola, when she talked about this story, she talks about the extraordinary power of the unfathomable. And I think that Kirsten Dunst kind of personifies that completely. She's just, she's completely inscrutable. You can't, you can't begin to figure out what she's thinking at any given moment. She's just like, She's beautiful. You almost get you almost get kind of hypnotized by how beautiful she is. But then she's got these really sad eyes. But then she's teasing you at the same time. But then she's kind of with her sisters, so you, you are excluded completely. Um, she's just completely unfathomable. You don't under, you can't understand her. Well, that's the thing with this film. It throws up a lot of questions, mm. zero answers. Yeah. If you're looking for answers, if you're looking for I mean, if you watch a film and you're the sort of person that needs to know everything that's happened, you need everything tied up in a in a tidy little bow and put in a basket and given to you like this is the complete film. This is everything we need to tell you. This is everything you want to know. You're not going to get this on this film. No, it's very much a think piece. It's very much walk away and consider what have I just experienced? What what yeah. does that bring up in myself? And it's not even happening in real time. Like we're not watching the story of the Lisbon sisters in as it's happening to them, we're, we are experiencing it as a memory, as yes. something that's being told to us by somebody who is now older. Yeah, it's it's some sort of interview or something. Yeah. Because the people are very aware that they are telling their story. Even when the mum comes on the, the, the narration at the end. Does she? Yeah, she, just very quickly, she says, none of my daughters lacked for love. There was plenty of love in our house. Mm. So it's almost like someone's creating their own documentary, but we're not seeing that. We're seeing the memories of the of the documentarian. No, I don't, I don't know. Or maybe, or maybe we've just watched a complete recreation based on. Yeah. So none have, of them looked like that because they interviewed the older Josh Hartnett. They do, yeah, and the which isn't the necessarily voiceover. needed. I didn't think it actually added anything to have him shown as a grown-up well it, it added one thing because a nurse comes over and says it's time for your afternoon session so clearly he's in he's in therapy. some sort of well not just in therapy but in some sort of institution yeah and i think the hint the suggestion is that it's because of his experience with the mm. with lux and her sisters but also because he can't explain his own behavior you know the, again it's the unfathomable he's sitting there saying i don't know why i left her on the field i have yeah. no idea and it's kind of like, well, no, because you're a teenager. You just, you're, you're just following your hormones. You're just thinking with your dick, mate. You're just thinking with your other head. The colour palette in this film is absolutely gorgeous. 
that kind of orange glow and then it's kind of got that blue cold so yeah so it jumps from jumps from like not super hot but whimsical 70s flashback it looks like those pictures that you find of your parents from the 70s that were taken with like a really old cold kodak yeah, camera like, or... like a kodak brownie or something yeah or exactly some sort of very early polaroid yeah um kind of a bit sepia the framing is very photographic yeah and and there's even like double ex- double exposure or there's, some, there's some double exposures yeah, yeah. Like with the, the in fact, that's how cloud. it opens. You know, the faces superimposed over clouds. Yeah, they've gone to heaven. Is that the suggestion? Mm. I think so. But the palette is brilliant. It goes from very warm, but not super duper. Um, war- like, have you ever seen Stonewall? That um, yeah. So that was. I've only seen the first ten minutes. And I was a. Uh, it was just. It was atrocious. I turned it off. <laughs> but that's got this very romantic warm mm. glow to it like love actually style kind of but if love actually was in the 70s yeah but this film doesn't it has a very stripped muted brown like stained tea yeah that kind of look and then it jumps to this really cold blue mm. and i love that that cold blue because when you when when it first cuts to that cold blue they're shopping for their prom dress mm. and you would think this is a really happy scene surely the warm orange would match this. But no, because she's using that blue to tell us this is not going to end well. Mm. So when Kirsten Dunst wakes up on that football field and she realizes she's alone, it's the same blue. Yeah, There's a link back. It's a miserable color. Yeah. The color scheme is really, really similar, strangely, to the first Halloween, which was 1978, where Halloween during the day is kind of those muted oranges and suburban streets and then it's got like horrific cold blues as well so i wonder if she even used that as a reference because obviously she's shooting a film set around that time i don't know yeah i didn't even think of that maybe i don't know kirsten dunce actually used to talk about them going going to heaven kirsten dunce did say she said um that sophia brought out the luminous aspects of the girls she made them look like ethereal angels almost like they weren't really there they do look like like little spirits moving Moving yeah. away because they're always dressed pretty much identically in those nineties, especially in when white. they're around that tree. They're like ghosts. Yeah. yeah, they're all blonde. Yeah, proper white, like even whiter than you. Yeah, that's something. That's something. Yeah, yeah. like see-through, like yeah. porcelain dolls. Like they're not real people. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of Which that. Which maybe they aren't because they're they're teenagers. You know, te- they're still being shaped. They're still evolving. I mean, we always are. We're yeah. always evolving as grown-ups, but especially teenagers are so impressionable um maybe that's a comment on that as well when i was a teenager i remember once sitting around with my mates and one of them said it's really difficult it was really quite profound i thought at the time he said it's really difficult being a teenager because we are physically we're ready for sex we're ready Mm. for all these adult adventures but mentally we're not even close to being ready Mm. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, you've you've got the the anatomy for it, but you're not emotionally prepared for what it's like to actually be with somebody. I remember that feeling very well. Still get it now. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think this film is more about the boys than it is about the girls? I was trying to figure that out because the boys are kind of are kind of shown as quite wholesome, almost kind of. but well, they're horny as fuck. They are, but also quite naive as well. And kind of like, the I love the, the opening moments where 
after Cecilia has attempted suicide for the first time. In the bath? Yeah, we get these these kind of insights into the boys discussing the event. And one of the boys is like, I was there, it was blood everywhere, it was horrific, it was awful. It's like, yeah, okay. Mm. And then there's the mothers down the street who are saying, it's the parents' fault, yeah. blame the parents. And I love how you get these little snippets of conversation that that show you what the the environment is, how they're judging this family. Um, but the boys... The boys come across as quite likable and well-rounded and just kind of everything the girls aren't. The girls seem cool and distant and untouchable. And the boys, it's almost adorable how fascinated they are in the girls, if not slightly creepy. (laughs) They're clambering. They just, you know, they are clearly thinking with their hormones. Yeah, they are. Uncontrollably, like maybe they don't even realise that they are completely infatuated I completely see it as a coming age story for these boys, but not yeah. in the sense that, you know, the Goonies or the Breakfast Club or Call Me By Your Name or Stand By Me is a coming of age story or Stranger Things. It's a coming of age story where the conclusion is that it's been a really positive experience and they're going to go on to have these amazing lives enriched by what they've just experienced during <laughs> the film. This one is the complete 180 degrees they've experienced something that has completely fucked them up for the rest of their lives yeah yeah it's like they the way that the boys are portrayed in this film really reminded me of that tv show freaks and geeks oh yeah which was also like about the same time similar time yeah set in the 70s Um, as well right uh is it yeah yeah, yeah, it is it was because yes. the girl has her dad's Vietnam jacket on yeah yeah and the 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 guidance counselor is like a total stoner like a hippie stoner with long hair. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But the boys in this don't feel threatening because they clearly haven't got a shot with the girls. They're kind of... No. They're the nerds. Yeah. They're kind of like the Goonies, but a few years later. Kind of the Goonies, just as they are starting to realise girls could be quite cool. But it's a, it's a completely different world, isn't it? Yeah. This one feels way... Oddly, this one, this one feels way more real and grounded than the Goonies or the Breakfast Club. Well, yeah, because... Goonies was kind of like a silly, fun, gadget kind of Spielberg film. Yeah. And Breakfast Club was was very specifically a John Hughes film. Yeah. It sits in that, that kind of period of time when there were films like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and kind of psychology or psychiatry, whichever one's the correct usage, that was kind of almost in terms of modern medicine it was kind of in its infancy and people were just starting to think about um psychotherapy and yeah and you know teenagers like teenagers weren't a thing until the 50s yeah. so this is set 20 years after the teenagers became an actual thing, <laughs> thing that people recognized but the mother would never have sent those kids off for therapy no, no they no were way. like i'm not sending them to a quack even the, the first i mean sister... the girl does she does have that ink blot test with danny devito but she even says, you don't know what it's like being a teenager. Or yeah. You don't know what it's like being 13. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, you're not even old enough to know how bad life gets. And she says, obviously, Doctor, you've never been a 13-year-old girl. Yes. Which is such a cynical, cutting thing for a 13-year-old to say. Um, I really, really enjoyed watching this again. Me too, actually. And it's, I mean, it just is a classic. There's no way, it just is. It's yeah. so specific in its vision. It's so complicated without being kind of um you know too packed and full of itself it's just kind of subtly arresting i would say 
it just draws you in and you want to know it's kind of like they are they're like the cool girls at school they don't even know it they're like this cool pack and you're just like who are they it's like the heathers oh my god heather it's like who are these girls and you want to know as much as the boys do it's very dreamlike and calming this film it's weird i feel considering the the subject matter yeah i watched it a few days ago when I was kind of in the thick of a cold and now I feel like I actually, I feel like I dreamt the film a little bit. Like I'm not <laughs> entirely is, sure that I watched crazy. it. Like, I have to watch it twice. <laughs> yeah. Cause it does sort of just come over you and just, you feel completely calm. So either that's, you know, the fact that Sophia Coppola is an incredibly talented visual filmmaker, storyteller, or mm. I just really love teenage suicide. <laughs> <laughs> So that was The Virgin Suicides, directed by Sophia Coppola. Joshua, give us a clue as to what the next film's going to be. Um, it's directed by Sophia Coppola. Oh. It's also written by Sophia Coppola. And it is the next film that she made after making The Virgin Suicides. And there is a connection, but you'll have to tune in next time uh... to find out. You can find the podcast on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Acast, and the TuneIn Radio app. Hit subscribe and follow so you don't miss an episode. And give us a tweet at TornStubsPod. Let us know what you think about The Virgin Suicides. What do you think about Sophia Coppola's debut? We're off to the prom. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua Winning. Cut. <laughs>